From CPR News in Grand Junction, this is Colorado Matters. As a girl in Gunnison, Shelley Reed swam in Blue Mesa Reservoir, and she knew a watery ghost town was just beneath her. And I have to say that even as a child, that really captured my imagination, and I found it rather haunting. It was just sort of a detail that I think I just filed in the back of my mind, in the back of my imagination, uh, until I eventually started working on this novel. The novel, now a global bestseller, is called Go as a River. And it's not just about the disappearance of the town of Iola, Colorado. I knew that I certainly could not tell a story about displacement in the American West without including the indigenous experience. We turn the page at Colorado Mesa University. I decided to donate my car to Colorado Public Radio. I tried to get it fixed, and our mechanic very kindly and gently told us that that was useless. It seemed like a good idea to give it to someone who would get something out of it. And the first thing that came to mind was Colorado Public Radio. A person came out, and I had to sign my name in two places, and it was that simple. I would strongly suggest it to anyone that wants to get rid of an old car. We did it online, and it worked out great. If you have a car to donate, it's easy to do at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner in Grand Junction. It was a sight to behold. In 2018, drought drained Colorado's largest reservoir, Blue Mesa, and the remnants of a town emerged called Iola. Iola wasn't a very big town, but a lot of the foundations, I'd say, oh, 10 or 15 foundations have appeared You can barely see the grade to the Denver and Rio Grande Railroad that went by there. Mm. Uh, And in the surrounding area, there are a lot of ranches, and so there's a lot of ranch building foundations also. That is from an interview at the time. Iola, Colorado, and two other communities were indeed sacrificed in the 1960s to make way for water. Well, in a stunning new novel, fifth-generation Coloradan Shelley Reed imagines life in Iola, particularly for a family of peach farmers. We read Go as a River for our series Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. You will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the chimes ring like this. And author Shelley Reed joins me on stage in Grand Junction at Colorado Mesa University, where she will take our questions and yours, and let's welcome her. <laughs> Shelley, you live in Gunnison. You swam in Blue Mesa Reservoir, which this year is brimming as a kid. Uh, What was it like to swim there as a little one? Oh, my goodness. My earliest memories of Blue Mesa Reservoir are when I was very young. Those of you who know Blue Mesa know that it's a beautiful, beautiful lake. It's where people swim and fish and boat and ice skate in the winter. And I loved it in those ways when I was a child. But um, because I had family in the area, I always knew that at the bottom of that reservoir, there were towns who had been drowned, evacuated and drowned, in order to uh, create Blue Mesa Reservoir. And I have to say that even as a child, that really captured my imagination, and I found it rather haunting, actually. 
I, I somehow picture your toes dangling in the water <laughs> above a foundation. Yeah, potentially hundreds of feet down. Blue Mesa is very deep, yeah. very, very deep. It was just sort of a detail that I think I just filed in the back of my mind, in the back of my imagination. Uh, until I eventually started working on this novel, it seemed just the right setting uh, for the story that I wanted to tell. I do want to reflect on the fact that Blue Mesa Reservoir freezes. I had so pictured you swimming in it, but the notion of the disappeared towns frozen beneath the yeah, surface is its own kind of eerie, isn't, isn't it? it? Yeah, that's an eerie, eerie thought as well. And even when you're quote unquote swimming in Blue Mesa, those of you who have done it, you know you actually jump in, splash about a little bit and jump out. It's so cold. Anything in Gunnison County obviously is so cold, even yes. in the heart of the summer. <laughs> Gunnison, I think one of the like strange Colorado facts is, isn't Gunnison the coldest spot yeah. in the state? It generally is. Yeah. Most, most nights it's the coldest spot in the state. Interestingly, I've recently been taught that it is now colder as a result of having the reservoir than it was previous to having the reservoir. So that's pretty fascinating. I really can't explain exactly why, but I've only recently learned that. Two other towns were inundated. Saboya, Spanish for onion, and the largest, Sapanero. Mm -hmm. Why write about Iola with its 200 or so residents? Yeah, I don't know that I fully know the answer to that myself. Um, when Ryan mentioned that the, the Blue Mesa Reservoir became so low with the extreme drought in the American West in 2018, I had already been working on this novel for, <laughs> I don't even know, well over a decade before that. And so I had been in the town of Iola in my imagination for a very, very long time, never imagining, nobody in Gunnison County ever imagined that Iola, Sapanero, any of the towns, but Iola was the one that ended up emerging because it's the closest to Gunnison and I'm not entirely sure why Iola itself was the one that I was most interested in. There was a train depot there. The train came through that whole valley originally. Iola was a gathering place originally in that area for loading cattle onto trains and hauling them to Denver over Marshall Pass. And so I think that there was a center point from the various directions that gathered in Iola, and I think that always was very interesting to me. I also think it's a beautiful word. Yes. <laughs> a lot of my novel, I chose the language very carefully to try to bring into the language of my novel the beauty of the natural landscape of the Gunnison Valley that I love so much. And I even read, we can talk about, but there was very, very little information about Iola previous to it ex being exposed in 2018. When I went to research it, it was actually incredibly difficult to get any information because it really was not um, documented very mm. well. There, a, a couple things have happened since then that have increased that documentation, but in 2018, no one was really known about Iola. Still to this day, the Wikipedia page for Iola is four sentences, and one of those sentences says Iola was named Iola simply because the townsfolk thought it was a beautiful word. <laughs> and I think that might have been one of the reasons I chose it as well. It's a beautiful word. Were you able to excavate the 
provenance of Iola, the, the word, the etymology? Do we know? No, no, I don't okay. really know. You know, there is Iola, Kansas. Some of you know that. I don't know how that predates or okay. whatever, but I, I thought it was a beautiful word as well. And so, yes, of those three towns, it was really Iola that I mentally, in my imagination, started living in so intensely for all the years that I was writing this book. And so there you are writing the book, and yeah. the town emerges because of drought. Yeah. I can imagine that being haunting. I can imagine it being painful yeah. for folks who might have had connections to Iola. Yeah, absolutely. I think when Iola emerged, as I said, it was an event that nobody, probably anyone in the American West, but certainly not in the Gunnison Valley, ever expected that they would see. And so uh, I will say that Colorado Public Radio was the first to report it. And after that, uh, the Denver Post, the Colorado Sun, and even the Los Angeles Times picked up that article. And it was the first time I ever saw anything written about that area in the media. And then in some of those interviews, they interviewed some of the people who had grown up in Iola and had been displaced for the reservoir and that some of them went back to see it, to walk through the remnants of the town. For some people, it was fascinating. Uh, for some people, it was nostalgic. But for most people of the interviews that I have read and of people that I've talked to, it was so incredibly painful. I want to play just a bit more from the gentleman we heard at the top, local historian Dave Primus, describing more of the scene in 2018. Yeah. When you first walk down to it, the first thing that strikes you uh, is a growth of alfalfa, which was interesting because a lot of the ranches grew alfalfa around there, and it's still growing today under where the reservoir was. And then you walk a little bit further down kind of the main street, and you can see the foundation of the big little store, which was the store at Iola. It was also standard service, and so you can see pipes coming out of the ground that fed the gas pumps there. The alfalfa is wild to wild. me. Wild. Isn't that fascinating? It was, that means it was growing underwater, yeah, emerged, so. and then right. was revealed. Yeah. Do you want to tell us about the flagpole? Yeah, the flagpole. The flagpole in the center of Iola, it was outside of the, the schoolyard. Um, that emerged, and on it was um, brands from some of the local cattle ranches, as well as signatures from some of the children who had gone to school in the Iola schoolhouse. And that has been marinating under Blue Mesa Reservoir for all of these years, uh, since 1965, the year I was born. I'm 57 years old, so that helps me keep track. But it uh, was well over 50 years it emerged, and there was that um, the base of the flagpole, just as, as the townsfolk had left it when they were forced to evacuate. Did you just use the verb marinating? Yeah. <laughs> that I Iola was marinating under Blue Mesa? <laughs> You know, Shelley, you might want to think about a career in writing. <laughs> Thank you, Ryan. I, I'll consider that. <laughs> Beyond Iola, there are towns beneath other reservoirs in Colorado. The original town of Dillon under Dillon Reservoir. Stout, Colorado is beneath Horsetooth Reservoir near Fort Collins. You, you must have had a rough layout of town in your head as you wrote, though, because you do name streets like North Laura. You name businesses. And yet the Wikipedia page is, yeah. you know, t two sentences or something. So was there a grid to study? 
No, no, not at all. One of the wonderful things about living in Gunnison County for decades is that we have some extraordinary local storytellers, local story keepers. Um, Dwayne Vandenbush, uh, a former state historian for the state of Colorado, I adore. Uh, several times a year we gather and we listen to storytellers and we see slides and I think those storytellers growing up with them uh, helped to evoke at least in my mind that I felt like I knew what Iola looked like but I mm. can't say that I knew the exact layout. I had to speculate from what I had been told from some photographs that I was able to dig up from the Colorado State Historical Society and the name of the big little store which was really a store but I'm also going to say that this is a work of fiction and so there are distinctions between writing a non-fiction narrative or a historical account as Dave Primus has done recently or um, writing a narrative from your imagination. So I'm going to tell all of you this that the the street North Laura is actually in Ridgeway. Oh, okay. <laughs> But when I was writing the book, you know, I, I, I was walking through Ridgeway, because I love Ridgeway, and I was walking down the street in North Laura, and again, the poetry of those words, the poetry of North Laura, I'm like, I'm going to put that in my book, uh -huh. because I actually didn't know what the street names were in Iola. So then it's kind of magical as a fiction writer, you have a certain level of creative license to be able to um, serve the story, serve the language of the narrative, and um, the backdrop and the context of my book is in you know, the damming of the wild Gunnison River to the Create Blue Mesa Reservoir, but a lot of the particulars of the story that I tell came from my imagination instead of historical fact. You opened the door so I get to walk <laughs> through it. So far as we can tell, we have people on the ground in the western slope who can look this up. Western sleuths, I guess. So far as we can tell, peaches were not grown in Iola. No. But of course, peaches are so synonymous with the Western Slope. Yes. That how could you not write about that, I right? I know. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you, for, thank you for throwing me that bone because I feel the same way. I mean, I love... Western Slope peaches are just really something special. I know that we can all agree. Here we are in Grand Junction in peach country, right? And so the Grand Valley peaches are so famous and so beloved, as are the North Fork Valley peaches. And they just sort of worked their way into the narrative. And so, yes, I knew, I knew that's where you were going to go when you were like, speaking of uh, creative license, I'm like always going to ask me about the peaches because I do, well, two things that are very interesting about the peaches. One, you all should know that um, I've been on a long book tour ever since the book was released uh, at the end of February of this year, both in the United States and throughout Europe, because the book is actually being translated into 32 languages and being published. <laughs> Uh, being published all over the world. Uh, no one is more shocked about that than I, and grateful, grateful, grateful. But uh, a book tour all throughout Europe um, earlier this summer, and the first question I get anywhere that is not Colorado is, do you really grow peaches in Colorado? <laughs> People are stunned. They're shocked. They have no idea that we grow peaches in Colorado. And, you know, of course, as a fifth-generation Coloradan, my answer is the best peaches <laughs> in the world. We're all so lucky, and uh, especially right now, as they're getting late season, we all know that they're at their sweetest, and I'm so appreciative of them. Um, 
so that's one thing. But the second thing, once I decided to bring in peaches into the narrative, um, very much as a symbol of the idea of growing against the odds, like how do we have these remarkable peaches in Colorado? It's not accidental. It's the result of some very careful cultivation, generational expertise to create these beautiful peaches here in our in our state. and. Uh, I wanted to learn more about that, and so I interviewed a lot of the peach farmers, primarily in the North Fork Valley because I spend more time there than I do here in the Grand Valley. They were so generous and kind to meet with me. I talked to a lot of peach growers, and it was really lucky because I had a few things totally wrong <laughs> in my first drafts of my book, but they set me straight. One of the questions I asked them was, you know, hypothetically speaking, <laughs> if you were writing a story and you really wanted to um, use the symbolism of the peach orchard um, growing against the odds, the idea of transplantation, the idea of resilience in new soil, if you really wanted to use that thematically in a book, would it have been possible to grow a peach tree in the Iola Valley? And uh, we had lots of conversations about that. What ultimately they were said, they often told me was possible, maybe. Preferable? No. <laughs> <laughs> so the idea of why would you want to do that? They also talked to me about how difficult it is to transplant a peach orchard. This is why they're peach farmers and you're a novelist, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. <laughs> That's true. I had a dear friend of mine who's a farmer, and you know, I come from farmers and ranchers. That is my heritage, and I, I greatly honor it, and I feel it in my bones. I have my own little garden, you know. I told my friend once that I really wanted to be a farmer, and all she said was, oh, Shelley, don't romanticize farming. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> yes, exactly. The, the, it is hard work, and that level of expertise, again, I have so much respect for, so much. This book, Go as a River, is not just about the displacement of Iola and its mostly white residents. Displacement is a long theme in the Gunnison River Valley. Speak to that for us. Yeah, so, um, you know, my character, Victoria Nash, the main character of my novel, as her character, it all, my novel, it all started with me imagining this young woman who really at the beginning of the novel has no sense of her own strength, her own individual identity and has to gain that over the course of the novel um, through facing very extraordinarily difficult circumstances and choices. I knew that for Victoria, um, part of her challenge was going to be displacement because as a fifth generation Coloradan, I feel so deeply connected to place. It's such an essential part of who I am. And so speculating on what it must feel like for the people of Viola, for anyone who has to be displaced from their homeland, to me, that is a special kind of pain. And I wanted to investigate this in this book. And so once I placed Victoria in Iola, started thinking about the displacement around Blue Mesa Reservoir, I knew that I certainly could not tell a story about displacement in the American West without including, on some level, whatever level that I was able, uh, without including the indigenous experience. Because obviously, well before the predominantly white ranchers and farmers of the Iola area were displaced, was a 500-year history of the Ute people living in that same valley every summer and fall. 
and um, as nomadic people, they were only there when you know it was not too cold to be there. But um, that displacement is also at the bottom of Blue Mesa Reservoir. To me, those layers of displacement are fascinating, and painful, and so I wanted to include them to the degree, again, that I was able, and I did that through the character of a young man named Wilson Moon. Yes, Victoria falls in love with an indigenous coal miner named Wilson Moon. Why do you think she fell for him? Well, I think, you know, and they, they meet on the literally first pages of, of the novel, so we're not giving anything away too much here. On North I think, Laura, I think. <laughs> <laughs> on the intersection of Maine and North Laura, which is in Iola for my book, so we'll go with that. Yeah, yeah, you're never going to let me forget that one, are you? <laughs> um, Victoria Nash and Wilson Moon meet on the very first pages of my book, and, and I think that for Victoria, Wilson Moon is a drifter. For Victoria, Will ignites something inside of her that is something different, it's something new. She had been very restricted as a woman in rural Colorado in 1948 when the novel opens. She had been incredibly restricted in terms of how she knew, what she knew of herself, what her role in the world was, what her possibilities were. She basically was sort of the servant to her family after her mother had died. And in Wilson Moon, she saw a different kind of man, a different kind of person, and he appreciated her. So I think that there was a mutual appreciation of these two young people that sparked something very um, very important between the two of them, and their lives were then both forever altered. But I think that in Wilson Moon and in Victoria Nash, we have this moment of transcendence where they're able to transcend those inherited cultural biases that I try to sort of unpack a little bit in the book of where does the suspicion of otherness come from? Where does racism come from? How are those hideous ideas, that misrepresentation of one another, that misunderstanding of one another, how is that perpetuated in our culture? And certainly a young indigenous drifter coming through a small town like Iola in 1948 would be looked on with some level of suspicion, not by everybody in the town, of course, but that inherited racism was embedded in some of the people uh, in the town in my story, but not in Wilson Moon and Victoria Nash. For me, they're the characters who can be transcendent of those biases, Mm. and I think that's a really important story to tell. In contrast to Victoria, there's a character named Zelda, She says, women are meant to carry more than grief in babies. Such a powerful line. Yeah. Because Victoria has dealt with a fair amount of grief in her own life, a lot of loss in her family. Who is Zelda? (laughs) Well, I'm very grateful for Zelda, I have to say. Zelda showed up uh, on one of the final drafts of this novel of many drafts. (laughs) And uh, I needed Zelda. Victoria needed Zelda. Zelda comes in towards the end of the book, and she's really the first truly modern woman that we see in the novel. And what that means to me is that she has a sense of her own identity and her sense of her own possibilities, but also she knows that she will not be limited by um, societal expectation of what a woman can be. And Victoria has spent most of her life at this point of the novel 
working very hard to claim her own identity, to figure out who she is outside of who she's being told to be, which I think that is true for many women. I think that we, we often have to work a little bit harder to say, here I am in the world exactly as I want to be, as opposed to who you're telling me I should be. And Zelda will have none of that. <laughs> Zelda is fully herself. She carries her grief. She carries her history um, without shame without regret, and she knows how to move forward. And that's just the friend, uh, I, I say in the book, it's essentially Victoria's first friend of her life, other than the peaches and the natural world. Um, it's uh, a friend that has that sort of vision for her own life that is exactly the catalyst that Victoria needs when they meet toward the end of the book. Divya Collatel of Grand Junction asks, I was thinking about how it must have been to write a book over the course of 10 years. How did the events of your life? <laughs> I'll just say it was more than 10 years. I think it was like 12 or, or more. Oh, but yes. okay. But anyway, <laughs> but yes. How did the events of your life and the world, frankly, shape the story of the novel? Wow, Divya, such an important question for me as a writer to, to say this because I, I, um, you know, I mentioned earlier I'm 57 years old. This is my debut novel. I'm super proud of that. I set out to be a writer as a, as a child. I, um, my undergraduate degrees, my graduate degrees are all in creative writing and literary studies. I was well on my way, but then I had a teaching fellowship in grad school, and I ended up being a teacher for almost 30 years, and I loved it. I wouldn't have it any other way. But once this novel started forming in my mind, um, I was patient with it. I let it evolve over time. Some of that was just there's only so many hours in the day when I was raising uh, our two kids and teaching full time and there wasn't a lot of space for my own creativity. So I let it evolve in that way, but also I uh, experienced a lot of personal challenge during that time while I was writing this narrative. Uh, a terrible um, death in our family, a, a difficult illness, um, a terrible injury for my husband. We faced a lot as a family uh, during the years that I worked on this book. and. I became a deeper and richer person for those experiences, and uh, in a parallel way, the novel became deeper and richer for those experiences as well. And so I often say, and I hope this encourages older writers, there's no way I could have written this book as a younger woman. I had to live through the things that I lived through. I value those experiences deeply, and they're all reflected in the story that I tell about Victoria. I'm, I'm so pleased you just spoke to older writers. Do you, do you encounter older writers? Yeah. Who perhaps feel some, I don't know if it's regret or maybe even shame around the idea that it has taken longer than they envisioned. I mean, I think we all know what that experience feels like. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I always, I often say that I'm a deep believer that creativity has its own timeline. And I don't know what signals we're getting from the, what, the, the, the culture, <laughs> the, the culture, zeitgeist. the world, the whatever it is that tells us what should and should not be. I'm a big believer in rejecting most of that. 
uh, the shoulds and should nots of our life. I think that each individual needs to discover those for yourself with um, the utmost amount of confidence. But if someone is telling you that it's taking you too long to finish painting your picture or uh, finish writing your novel or whatever it is that you're engaging in creatively, I assure you that the timing is just right. Um, and I also understand how difficult it is to clear space for creativity in our lives. I think that I would encourage all of us to do more of that. I wish that I had created, that I had cleared more um, space in my life to honor my creativity, but I did eventually. You know, I got to it eventually when the time was right. So I know I'm a big believer in being as generous with ourselves as we possibly can because, I, we're, you know, we're all just doing our darn best, right? But showing up for ourselves and our own desires for our lives, I fear sometimes gets bumped to the bottom of the to-do list, and I would encourage everybody to maybe try to bump it a little bit higher, especially if creativity is something that you're drawn to, but then let it evolve uh, it, just as it should. Mm. I don't think we can force these things. I know I couldn't for my, for my book. Well, Divya, you should host an interview show. <laughs> well done. David Miller of Palisade asks, you singled out and challenged us with many critical social issues affecting Iola, extreme racism, low income and poverty, lack of education, extreme provincialism. How dominant were these themes and what motivated you to write about them? And he's thinking in some ways of Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath, mm -hmm. Peaches of Wrath. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I struggled with titles. I wish you had showed up with that earlier. <laughs> Um, well, uh, that's a great question, uh, David. Thank you for that. I thematically, uh, those of you who have read the book, especially if you've read it perhaps in a book club, I know it's been very popular in book clubs, and I think one of the reasons is there are layers of thematic concerns. There's a lot of themes to unpack in this book, and I did that purposefully. Uh, primarily because I dumped my whole heart and soul into this book, and I think that it's very reflective of what matters to me, what I think about, what I worry about, what I wonder about. But also the, the most important thing to me in this novel was telling a good story, telling a good compelling story that would touch a reader's heart. And so it wasn't that in these thematic concerns I, I wanted to be... Um, to uh, make a statement or be too didactic with those themes. Mm -hmm. I actually Right, because preferred... preachy isn't yeah. that no. engaging, right? No, it is not that engaging, and it really interferes with telling a good story, you know? So what I really hope to do with a lot of those deeper thematic concerns was just sort of lay them out, lay them out for the reader and say, these are part of the human condition. These are things that human beings grapple with. I'm laying them out there for you do with them what you will, you know? And I always ask myself, does it serve the story? Does it serve Victoria's story? And the answer was yes, it could stay. If the answer was no, it had to go. And, and yet, I also think that good literature can transport us to places, encourage us to ask questions that maybe we're not asking. 
Victoria briefly. Remember, she's a very quiet, sort of shy uh, character. I couldn't have her asking the deeper, some of the deeper questions of the uh, reality structures of our culture. But I, I do have her a couple times, like once, pause and question the ideas of progress. You know, progress that created Blue Mesa Reservoir, progress that um, was the catalyst for. Um, the essential genocide against the Native American people. It was packaged and sold as progress. I wasn't going to make a big statement about that, but I did want Victoria to pause and say, is what is sold to us as progress always a good thing, or can it be opened up and examined, and aren't there both good and bad things involved in those, um, in those ideas? Is Blue Mesa Reservoir, whose creation destroyed Iola, is is the reservoir the villain of this book? <laughs> um, no. No, I think that um, one of the things I want to avoid in the characters that I create and also in the story that I wanted to tell was heroes and villains, I think. I wanted in each one of these characters to show, again, those kind of layers on complexity within individual human beings, within individual circumstances. The, the Colorado River Compact, as some of you know, is a 100-year-old law that is still dictating water policy in the American West, and the choices that were made, primarily in the 1950s and the 1960s, around some of those dams that you mentioned, Ryan, um, the list of dams that were created, reservoirs that were created in the 1950s and the 1960s as part of the Colorado River uh, Storage Project. I believe that they came with a tremendous amount of pain, a tremendous amount of ecological destruction, and yet there were benefits to those water projects as well. And so in a way, Blue Mesa is kind of the symbol of nothing is all good or all bad. You know, there are complexities involved in the decisions that contributed to the creation of Blue Mesa Reservoir. But I'm a big believer in asking, okay, well, there's going to be these benefits, but what are the detriments? In other words, who has to suffer in order for this project to go forward? That's really the question I wanted to to ask in the novel. You know, I think that the, the historical research that I did around Blue Mesa Reservoir, the opening of the book says that a history book would portray the creation of Blue Mesa Reservoir as, as heroic. But then Victoria immediately says, but I know another story. So history books tell us what happened. I think as a writer, so, as a sometimes, novelist. Sometimes, sometimes history sometimes, books tell us that. Well, that's true. I mean, again, representation. Issues of representation are very, very complex. And I think any reader of history needs to go in with a healthy dose of skepticism. It's very important to do so. Gather lots of different narratives and try to figure out what was the truth there, as opposed to believing that one or the other is true. But I think as a novelist, um, I didn't really want to ask what happened. I wanted to ask the question of how did that feel? You know, how did that feel for the people who had to experience that? And so, you know, no, uh, no clear villains, no clear heroes. The poet laureate on the Western Slope is Wendy Vidalock. Uh, she's in our audience. She is ubiquitous, by the way. I was in Palisade earlier today. I stopped by the library. The branch there has a little bookstore. Oh, yay. And in front of the Palisade Library is a plastic holder, and you can take a poem. You can just take a poem. Wendy Vidalock has, has left poems for people. 
you know, I mean, her part of her job is to disseminate poetry. And so she asks Shelley, Wendy here, your prose is filled with metaphor, distilled language and symbolism, all poetic devices. Tell us about your relationship to poetry and how it informs your prose and how it might move the narrative along. Thank you, Wendy, for that question. I can't find you. Where are you, Wendy? Oh, hi, you're way back there. Hi, Wendy. Thank you for that question. You know, I mentioned earlier that, that language, part of the reason it took me so darn long to write this book is that I crafted every sentence very intentionally, actually. Poetry means a great deal to me. I've probably read more poetry and studied more poetry in my life than any other form. I, I, that, is, that was very important to me as I created this novel. And the metaphors, you know, the, we talked about the metaphor of the peaches and the idea of growing against the odds. That's a central metaphor throughout the book. Um, the title itself, Go as a River, is a central metaphor uh, that runs throughout the entire book. No, pun intended. I, it runs throughout the book, well done. Yep. Uh, uh, the idea that, you know, this is very much a story about discovering the depths of our strength and resilience, the idea that a river finds a way to move forward no matter what, you know, up and over and around obstacle, um, carving new banks when necessary, a river finds a way to flow. And I spent a lot of my time out in wild landscapes and I've studied, just sat and studied and thought about everything that wilderness can teach us about living our best lives. And I've learned so much from just sitting and studying rivers about how we can find a way to move forward in life. And so that's the central metaphor of the, the novel. The Gunnison River, the North Fork River, and the Animus River feature very prominently in the book as well. And so, you know, there's uh, smaller metaphors and symbolism all the way through and that I tried to really make unique to Victoria and Victoria's voice because it's a first person narrative all the way, most of the way through the book of Victoria's voice. And then also these larger metaphors that really ended up framing the book for me and kept me on track with what does, what does all of this mean? What is the deeper meaning of this novel? So thank you, Wendy, for that question. Amy Smisher and Ashley Sack are here from Canyon City, Colorado, and they ask, are there other themes or places you plan to explore in a future book? Places perhaps about displacement in the West? Yeah, so my, the novel that I'm working on currently uh, is also set in Colorado, but in the southeast corner of Colorado. So I mentioned that I'm a fifth generation Coloradan. My um, family, the stories of how my family came to settle uh, in the 1870s in northeastern Colorado and around 1900 in southeastern Colorado, those stories have been handed down to me with tremendous clarity from my grandfather. And I, I love them. I value them. These were tough, interesting people who got up every single day and just did what needed to be done. And so my next novel is, in, is oriented around that southeastern corner of Colorado, around um, and also the San Greta Cristo mountain range in Trinidad and Lamar and Wiley in that area. And so I'm investigating um, some, it's a, it takes place a little bit earlier than Go as a River, and I'm investigating some themes around the idea of belonging, because at that time, among some of the coal mining communities of that area, I know in one coal mining camp there were 27 different languages that were spoken, and I'm really fascinated by that 
um, by that history and also my own family ties to that history. And so that's part thematically of what I want to investigate. And also I think a little bit of early female mountaineering is going to be investigated in that book as well because I love to climb mountains myself and I'm fascinated by how women became more and more involved um, with climbing in the 20th century in Colorado. I'm so glad you'll focus on Southeast Colorado because I have a not so quiet love affair with like La Junta and yeah, Rocky Ford right. and Rocky Ford, yeah. And Swink. My grandpa was the mayor of Wiley, oh. Colorado, and uh, yeah, I, I think uh, that that corner is rich with history. Yeah rich with multiculturalism, rich with stories that you would never imagine. So yeah, I, I have an affection for the Southeast corner as well, and yet I don't know it as well as I should, so I think that's part of the impetus for. Uh, I actually have to do much more research for this book because writing goes a river. The Gunnison Valley is where I live and I'm immersed in every day, you know, for my entire adult life and much of my childhood. And I just knew it sort of in my bones. Southeast corner of Colorado, both ecologically and culturally, is quite different. Yeah. So I have a lot more research to do. Well, go to Swink. It's where the tallest Swink. flagpole is in Colorado. <laughs> <laughs> Can't miss that. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> Shelley, thank you so much for being with us. Ryan, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you everyone for being here. Author and educator Shelley Reed recorded in front of a live audience at Colorado Mesa University here in Grand Junction. Reed lives in Gunnison, and her new novel is Go as a River. I can tell you that our next pick for Turn the Page is nonfiction. It's about the science of heartbreak, and we'll gather in Loveland around Valentine's Day to discuss it. More details to come. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Glendale and Indy 1023 presents Colorado Music, Saturday, September 23rd at Infinity Park. Featuring four bands, all from the Centennial State, Lip Gloss DJs, Heavy Diamond Ring, Juno Rosa, and Wilderness. Bring blankets, chairs, your favorite food, and any non-alcoholic beverages. Glendale presents Colorado Music, Gates at 415, Wilderness at 8. Details and tickets, Indy1023.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner in Grand Junction. Survey markers, often in brass or bronze, note Colorado's tallest peaks. They prompted a question through Colorado Wonders, and our Western Slope producer, Tom Hess, found an answer packed with history and science. Kate Dignan's question seemed simple enough. I've seen those plaques, and I've, I've seen people taking photos of the plaques, and I've just always wondered who actually manages those, determines where they go on the actual mountain. And the answer to that question is relatively straightforward. But the job title of the person giving it to us made clear that there's more to this than corrosion-resistant landmarkers. My name is Derek Van Westrom. I'm a physicist with NOAA's National Geodetic Survey. Van Westrom is the gravity program manager, and he's here to tell us how the heights on those survey markers, the elevation of mountains, 
and even sea level itself are all more complicated than we realize. But first, the markers. I think there's evidence of Egyptians using survey markers to plot out land so that they could <laughs> redistribute it after the Nile would flood. But in the U.S., our agency was actually the first scientific agency in the United States. Uh, Thomas Jefferson commissioned it to do a survey of the coasts. You'll find survey markers listed for all kinds of agencies, but the National Geodetic Survey has the biggest catalog, with around 1.5 million in their database. They are used for a couple of types of measurement, horizontal positioning, and elevations. Because we had a map of the coast, we had an idea of where the average tide line was at some location. And if you call that a zero elevation, you can then work your way inland with rulers and leveled telescopes. And the same kind of thing, inch your way up from the coast, up the hills, into the mountains to, to find out how high things are. The current height system that we have in the United States took about 50 years to get all the benchmarks in place before they could finally do the math and see how high everything was relative to everything else. An epoxy is used to fix the markers to the rocks, preferably in a location that will be hard to move, and their shape is purposeful for measurement. You want one point of contact, which is why they're shaped like a dome. If you had a flat disc and it was set at an angle, the highest part of the disc would be the highest part, but it may not be what you want, whereas a dome is always centered where you want it, and the high point uh, is easy to get. But right now, elevation measurements aren't as precise as they could be. And while the exact height of Pike's Peak may be unimportant, the same cannot be said for the exact measurement of things like storm drains in a subdivision. Sounds obvious that water will flow downhill, but in flat locations, it becomes less obvious. If you have different densities of rock, the gravity of those rocks will actually come into play and dictate where the water will flow. So our agency, we work closely with FEMA to create flood maps. But honestly, anything that depends on heights, the grade of a railroad track, or if you make a dam, where will the contour of the water be? Knowing heights precisely is critical. You're probably wondering why the answer here isn't GPS. And in some cases, it is. It turns out GPS will give you a very precise elevation, but it's not accurate with respect to sea level. That's a very complicated phrase. In essence, the sign outside the visiting locker room at Mile High Stadium might tell opponents they're a mile above sea level, but that sea level is really more of an average. Again, not a big deal when you're playing up an altitude advantage, but pretty significant if you're building a railroad. Van Westrom's team is working to correct that. We have devices that measure the acceleration of gravity, um, and we make a map of that value by putting these instruments in airplanes and literally flying the entire United States on like a six-mile grid. It took 12 years. We're almost done. But once you know the surface value of gravity, yeah, you have to make some assumptions about the density of the rock under you. But if you do that, you can actually do this prediction of where sea level will be, say, under Colorado. That's the service that we're providing to all these GPS people to say, hey, correct your raw GPS with this surface, and it will tell you your height above this new sea level under Colorado. This method would be about 10 times more accurate than current measurements. It would even allow for updates to the new baseline due to rising sea levels in an age of climate change. The complete findings of this project are still to be learned, but it could mean some of Colorado's iconic elevations aren't what we thought they were. Standing in Grand Junction at 4,535 feet, at least for now, Tom Hess, CPR News.
Do you have a question about Colorado? Ask us, and we might be able to find the answer at cpr.org slash coloradowonders. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with special thanks to the team with me in Grand Junction, Tyler Bender, Tom Hess, and Stina Sieg. Thanks as well to Alex Scoville, Kayla Montoya-Monzo, and Bronson Henricks for help with our live event at Colorado Mesa University. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters on CBR News and KRCC.